Hello, my name is Greg. And I'm Betsy. And this is Going on 30, a popping collar side project where we seize the day. Oh, Greg. We seize the day with movies that were nominated or should have been nominated for Best Picture 30 years ago. This month, we're looking at Dead Poet Society. Gentlemen, what are the four pillars? Tradition, honor, discipline, excellence, manners up. Welton Academy for Boys, a breeding ground for the future leaders of America. An institution dedicated to achievement, virtue, and conformity. A school whose rigid standards are upheld by every single teacher, except one. Come on, Mr. Overstreet, you twerp. Mr. Anderson, are you a man or an amoeba? Language was developed for one endeavor, and that is... To communicate. No! To woo women. Mr. Keating. Some people like to rock, some people like to roll, but moving in a groove is gonna satisfy my soul and have a party. Touchstone Pictures presents Robin Williams as John Keating. Teacher. Well, is this a dagger I see before me? Philosopher. I like Byron. I give him a 42, but I can't dance to him. Orator. Oh, Titus, bring your friend hither. And founder of the Dead Poet Society. A bunch of guys sitting around reading poetry. No. Ding. Thank you for playing anyway. What was the Dead Poet Society? The Dead Poets were dedicated to sucking the marrow out of life. Spirits soared, women swooned, and gods were created. Not a bad way to spend an evening, eh? I hereby reconvene the Dead Poets Society. To strive, to seek, to find. Gotta do more, gotta be more. Dare to walk a new path. Dare to strike out and find new ground. I'm hearing rumors, John, about some unorthodox teaching methods in your classroom. Break out. I'm gonna do it! John Keating. He began by teaching English. Now, he's changing lives. I got the part! Tear out the entire introduction. Who put you up to it? Was it this new man, this, uh, Mr. Keating? Are we just playing around out here, or do we mean what we say? Tradition, honor, discipline, rip, shred, tear. What is this dead poet society? I want names. This is a battle, a war. The casualties could be your hearts and souls. For the first time in my whole life, I know what I want to do. Medicine, law, business, engineering. These are noble pursuits. Poetry, romance, love. These are what we stay alive for. That's beautiful. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. Arbatius! Sit down. What the hell is going on here? Seize the day. Touchstone Pictures presents Robin Williams as John Keating. He was the inspiration that made their lives extraordinary. Dead Poet Society. Do you have a brief synopsis of this movie, Greg? I do. I have a brief description of the movie. Would you like to hear it? I would love to. At an elite, old-fashioned boarding school in New England, a passionate English teacher inspires his students to rebel against convention and seize the potential of every day, courting the disdain of the stern headmaster. My only edit would be is if you're spinning this in in boarding school language, Greg, would not be old-fashioned, but it would be traditional. Betsy, what's your history with Dead Poet Society? Oh, man. 1989, I was in ninth grade, I think. Like, okay. this was... I'm, now I know why I was reading Whitman's Thoreau. It was, like, all over this... Why I know the phrase 
Carpe Diem. But this this is a highly romanticized movie in oh, my yeah. in my growing up for sure, for sure. Yeah. Having no experience at that time with boarding schools at all, and now I'm in my sixth year of working at a boarding school. So this very much was of different watching. And I was watching it with my daughter, who's 12, who now says this is her uh-huh. favorite movie. But it was really, she was just very inspired by it. And when she knew what Carpe Diem was, I said, you know about that because of this movie. That's why you know that phrase. What about you? I had never seen it. This is a never I had never seen the movie before. Okay, so here's the thing, though. Remember how we talked about before that... With Rain Man, right? You had said, do I know the pop culture of this movie? Okay. So I know the pop culture of Dead Poet Society. So here's a a thing that I think is an actual thing, and I'm going to give voice to it. I think it affects the way that you enjoy knowing opinions about the movie going into it. So, for instance, there was nothing surprising about this movie. I knew exactly kind of the path that was laid out. I knew how we were going to get there. I knew a lot of the quotes that were going to happen. And so I think it affected me, not negatively, but it made a movie that I would have probably thought was great. It made it fine, you know? It was like, yeah. okay, I mean, that's fine. Because you kind of understand what's happening and you're so sort of uh, guided by other people's opinions about the movies, uh, about the movie, and it's affected the way that you watch it. General thoughts on the movie. What are your hot takes to start off with? Okay, hot takes. So I have to say, looking at this through the lens of currently working in a boarding school, there were lots of things that felt very familiar. And that it made me think again when I talk about the culture of my school and how all schools, all institutions are in transformation. I think they're all changing all the time. The core remains, but they they alter around that. And so much of this was so extremely familiar. I'm watching like the opening chapel sequence. I'm watching the goodbyes with the families. Uh, we don't have boys as young as this movie portrays having boys this young. And this was filmed at an Episcopal school, St. Andrews in Delaware, which is you know more picturesque than my school, so they're not filming here. But they uh, they. You know, but that that goodbye and that kind of having that happen in a moment—that's the way we do it now. That kids will there's a there's a time on that day with new students that everyone says goodbye to mom and dad, and mom and dad kind of go off and. But so there were things like that—the ability for these kids to be mm-hmm. comfortable talking to adults, handshaking with adults. Like I've never seen teenagers be that way until I came here, and you see that that's just an ingrained part of being able to go off, and live on your own. Uh, but mm-hmm. the kind of waspy, central, this kind of cynic versus realist look at things, you know, I think I had this overwhelming feeling that now as a teacher, Mr. Keating, he's just ruined the game for everybody. That now I'm like, oh, I'm not having these monumental moments. I need to take the kids outside. We need to go walking somewhere. We need, And I, and I wonder whether it ruined yeah. teachers that I had when I watched it when was a freshman or whatever that looking for right. teachers who are so inspired and innovative and and they you know I don't know they he didn't let him call him by his first name but they but they had a nickname for him he was captain you know I'm Rev G like what right. does that mean you know that portrayal shaped a generation of people who wanted to teach 
Did you have a teacher that was like a Mr. Keating? Like, did, did you personally have one? I can think of two teachers in high school. Ms. Fairs, who uh-huh. taught English, and then Ms. First, who taught APUS. Yeah. And they were really, you know, I think Ms. Fairs, because she was English, and it was, it was all this stuff. It was all yeah. this American lit. And then for Ms. First, it really felt like a, like a, like a team. Like whenever he would do the huddle up, huddle mm-hmm. up, and like he gets low and pulls everybody in. Even the physicality of that is so different from the way you see the other teachers physically interacting with their students in class, whether it's rows of desks or they're walking outside reciting Latin. He's mm-hmm. always has them in these different, more modern physical locations, right? Physical interaction. And and she was she very much it was like having Pat Summit as a teacher. Like she was very much like coaching us and we're gonna get through this, we're a team and we're yeah. gonna take this test down. And like that I felt very much connected. She had a she had a nickname for me. She called me the bishop because I was away <laughs> at church stuff so often. And <laughs> yeah. So it was it was funny like that. And nice. and that, that that when a teacher's able to foster that connectivity between a group of young people. Yeah. What about you? I don't really remember any of my teachers' names before college. Mm -hmm. I guess I I had some college professors that I found inspiring. I I think that um, I think the ultimate sort of uh, credit that you can give a teacher is: do you steal part of their style or part of their affect or whatever in your own sort of teaching method? And I find that. I tended to adopt uh, traits from a lot of my undergrad professors uh, for mm-hmm. the classes that I teach and uh, and youth leaders, you know, inspiring youth yeah. leaders from yeah. like high school and stuff. But yeah, I mean, there's this great book out there I'll recommend called Steal Like an Artist. So it's yeah. like watch people learn from them and go with. Yeah, them. yeah, totally. I wrote a question, and the question was, is serious Robin Williams a thing at this point when this movie comes out? Because it seems like part of the the appeal of Dead Poet Society is seeing Robin Williams do something that we're not used to seeing him do, that it's working a different muscle for him. And I went back, and it's like, you know, you've got things like Good, Good Morning Vietnam, which is a little drama mixed in with comedy. But this is kind of like there's no I mean, there's a little bit of comedy in this, but there's he does no some, sense does some impressions, right. some impressions. Right. There's no sense I, that I, he's a comedic yeah. actor. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is. If you I think Good Morning Vietnam is the perfect mix between serious Robin Williams and like Mork. Right. right. He still does right. a lot of his. This, manic this leans shit. this. Yeah. Yeah, this leans more towards, let's say, Garp, mm-hmm. well, according to Garp, than it does towards Mork. It strikes me that this serves as a template for comedic actors moving forward. Like, the names that immediately jumped to mind for me were Steve Carell does this. Yes. Um, Jim Carrey does this, right? This idea of, I can do dramatic movies, and I'm still a comedian. I think that that's so. You're also you're also naming interesting people that Peter Weir has worked with, the director. Oh, really? I believe he did Am Truman I? Show. I think did he, he did. Yeah, I mean, like <laughs> we're talking about the ability to take 
comedic actors and work with them in different settings, right? Like, yeah. I would imagine that you have more flexibility with a comedic actor. I would imagine that a comedic actor can give you more range on a character than a traditionally dramatic actor. So maybe his working with Gerard Depardieu in Green Card. Mm, that's Ooh, right. Maybe. I also wrote probably a more cynical note, which is the idea of children as products. Oh, yes. Like, yeah. So, so I mean, there's a little bit of this from the parents. There's a lot of this language from the headmaster of the school where it's mm-hmm. where he talks about we've had so many students get into Ivy League schools. You are being prepared for greatness, you know, later on in life. It's this idea that it feels to me and I am a public school educated country bumpkin kid from North Carolina. This is about as far from my education experience as possible. It feels like there's less humanity afforded to these kids in favor of building them up towards something. I think when you talk about sacrifice, Mm -hmm. right? Sending your child or your child being away from you at a distance to go to school, whether or not the financial piece is a sacrifice whether or not having your child at a distance is a sacrifice, there's an element of sacrifice in it for the families. There's this, is this element of investment because we are talking about private education versus public education. Mm -hmm. And I would say that we even here now have that conversation of, well, it can't all go back to the college numbers all the time. Right. Right. That, that, you know, we don't quoting last class, last senior classes statistics, that there has to be more than that as to the reason why you would spend, you know, two, three, four years away from home at a boarding school. Now I see this. There's a shift I think in, in this investment quality to looking at your total life, seeing you as a whole student. Like there are moments here, you know, if a kid committed suicide at mm-hmm. home, mm-hmm. well, you know, and I was just sitting there looking at the situation, being like, if that this had happened, God forbid, mm-hmm. at my school, you know. We would be crashing the scene with counselors. We would be like all over this in a whole nother way, as opposed to an inquisition trying to track down and nail it onto this teacher mm-hmm. it, that that I look at this movie and I think about our alumni here when I meet them, when they come back for reunion every five years and the way of this time and without a great deal of coddling or nurturing any or handholding that they really counseled each other. They took care of each other. And I saw that really strongly in this movie in a way that I had not seen it before. And I thought about those, you know, they call themselves old boys a little bit, right? These old boys who, who used to be at my school, who I meet. And then when they talk about living through being Mm -hmm. away and the product part is definitely concerning. I, I wrote down a note I said, uh, using our fear as parents to beat our children into submission. Yeah. We're so afraid of their lack of success and for their what the future looks like for them. There was actually a really great shot early on in this movie of a mom saying goodbye to a young mm-hmm. boy. Yes. That was a shot that could have easily been edited out of this movie, and I'm so glad that it was left in because I think that that does – sort of taught it does sort of speak to that idea of sacrifice that you were talking about the sense that 
neither of these people really know what it is that they're giving up. Like the kid wants his mom. The mom wants his, her kid to be successful. They're both giving up something in favor of something else. And it's, it's heartbreaking and confusing. And there is value in creating family for yourself. I think that what you, what you gave voice to is accurate. This idea of the old boys, you know, being able to depend on people that you that come into your life and you grow to trust and love, that is a vital human experience. It's a way of taking care of ourselves when we have to leave our families. And I love that. I looked, saw that moment where Mr. Keeney is having them look at all the pictures of all the guys who come before them. And that connection through time that those guys formed that family. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. The Latin term for that sentiment is carpe diem. Now, who knows what that means? Carpe diem. That sees the day. Very good, Mr. Meeks. Meeks. Another unusual name. Seize the day. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Why does the writer use these lines? Because he's in a hurry. No. Ding. Thanks for playing anyway. Because we are food for worms, lads. Because believe it or not, each and every one of us in this room is one day going to stop breathing, turn cold, and die. I'd like you to step forward over here and peruse some of the faces from the past. You've walked past them many times. I don't think you've really looked at them. They're not that different from you, are they? Same haircuts, full of hormones, just like you. Invincible, just like you feel. The world is their oyster. They believe they're destined for great things, just like many of you. Their eyes are full of hope, just like you. Did they wait until it was too late to make from their lives even one iota of what they were capable? Because you see, gentlemen, these boys are now fertilizing daffodils. But if you listen real close... You can hear them whisper their legacy to you. Go on, lean in. Listen. You hear it? Carbidium. So you see like this multi-generational family forming. And I think that's why when boarding school kids go to college, they have this this kind of leg up and knowing that that's important. And I think we can relate to that at any time of transition, leaving mm-hmm. a job, town, I have to go make this somewhere else. Are you kidding me? And I think for as adults, it's, it's what holds us to places. That's my best scene from the movie is the the King. first class, the carpe diem scene where he has them in front of the trophy collection and he has them lean in to the picture and listen to the voices from the past. That's definitely mine. What's, what's your uh, best scene? My best scene is with Todd and Neil, Robert Sean Leonard and Ethan Hawke. And it was a small moment because I really look at teaching in boarding school, being in boarding school as being made up of all these small moments. And it was when, when Todd had gotten the death set for the second time. Oh, yeah. And and Neil couldn't make it, so his parents 
gave him something else. He couldn't excuse away their behavior. So he chose to make it funny and then to just make that death set fly. Hey. Hey. What's going on? Nothing. Today's my birthday. Is today your birthday? Happy birthday. Thanks. What'd you get? My parents gave me this. Isn't this the same desk? Yeah, yeah, they gave me the same thing as last year. Oh. Oh. Maybe they thought you needed another one. <laughs> Maybe they weren't thinking about anything at all. The <laughs> funny thing is about this is uh, I didn't even like it the first time. <laughs> Todd, I think you're underestimating the value of this desk set. I mean, who would want a football or a baseball? Or a car. Or a car. Mm. Or a car if they could have a desk set as wonderful as this one. I mean, if, if I were ever going to buy a desk set twice, I would probably buy this one both times. <laughs> In fact, it's... The shape is... It's rather aerodynamic, isn't it? You can feel it. This desk set wants to fly. Todd? The world's first unmanned flying desk set. Yeah. <laughs> oh my. Wow. And, and, you know, and then that he gave work. it to, you know, Ethan Hawke to do it, year. right? <laughs> that Todd did it. And those elements of bringing Todd out, like I felt like I looking at some of these kids' eyes, you know, you just, I could see students I know. And, and but it, that, it's the little moments where you're, you're down and are you going to trust somebody and tell them, whether it's an adult or a friend, what's going on? And Neil did the exact right thing. Uh, has the great line, don't worry, you'll get another one next year. Yes, so good. <laughs> That's great. So line. good. Best performance. So you hit mine. I, I have Ethan Hawke as my best yeah. performance in this movie. Yeah. I, th- yeah. I, I, You know, listen, I'm in the bag for Ethan Hawke. Dead Poet Society was not in my wheelhouse, but Reality Bites certainly was. All of those sort of 90s goateed Ethan Hawke movies, oh man, they, they were like a religion for me. I was, I was, I was there. I was, I was bought and sold by those. I liked Robert Sean Leonard. I thought yeah. his portrayal as Neil, and it really, that moment when his dad confronts him in the study, dang Kurtwood Smith, who I much prefer in that 70s show. <laughs> but Still kind of when, the same character, yeah. Well, and you, that that element of oh yeah, I talked to my dad. Sure, I talked to him. You, know, you didn't talk to your dad. Like just that element of seeing a high school kid just really wanting to push against the system, and then when his father gives him the opportunity, that he swallows it down. Yeah, and doesn't say anything. I thought he did a really nice job, just embodying the passion of of a high school kid like that. It, there feel it feels like there are some Jesus narrative echoes that kind oh of gosh. pop up in this movie all the time. Christ figures him, everywhere. Him with the puck 
crown, like right, um, right yeah. before he commits suicide, just feels like a crown of thorns moment. Yes. But also the way that he, just like you talked about in your best scene with the the desk set, the way that he's able to pull out sort of the passion of his friends. And then his friends have this sort of Judas moment where they're betrayed by one of them. It's like there is there. It's not a one for one, but there's so many sort of echoes of like a Christ narrative kind of running. Because, through. because you would think the Christ figure is John Keating. Right. Because he loses his job. But it really is that what is betrayed is the group. What is betrayed. <laughs> if And if someone's going to, embody the spirit of the group than the neil perry character robert sean leonard has he is the spirit of the group because you look at the disparate people that he's able to pull together that at least he pulls them together without it being all about him which is a very jesus move like i'm gonna get everybody together but not all the arrows are gonna be pointing at me they're gonna be pointing at everybody else stats about the movie let's do it that's Opened on June 2nd, 1989. Big summer blockbuster. Domestic gross of $96 million, making it the Ooh. number 11 grossing movie of 1989. It's the number 788th top grossing movie of all time between Rocket Man from 2019. Oh, wow. Elton John. Comes in just yeah. behind Rocket Man, and it comes in just ahead of Zero Dark Thirty. Interesting company. Eighty-four percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, Betsy, I need you to settle in. Are you ready okay. for this? Have a seat because this okay. is gonna this is gonna floor you. We finally got a negative review from Raj. No, this is schmaltzy as hell. He don't love this movie. He says, not the worst. Of the countless recent movies about good kids and hidebound authoritarian older people. It may, however, be the most shameless in its attempt to pander to an adolescent audience. Two out of four stars. Dang. I mean, I can see it. I want to yeah. know what other movies he's talking about in 1989. Because I probably watched them. I was being marketed to. Uh, recent movies about good kids and hidebound authoritarian old people. He's talking about um, Ferris Bueller. Red Dawn. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that the one where the kids go after the Russians? No, is it? I can't. Uh, There is a Pauline Carroll review. What'd she say? Pauline Kale is is high on this movie. She says. The picture draws out the obvious and turns itself into a classic. So we are living in bizarre world. Up is down. Left is right. Dogs and cats. Living together. Mass hysteria. (laughs) Pauline Kale, positive review. Roger Ebert, scathing review. You must have been having a bad week. (laughs) Maybe. Uh, Probably Siskel wouldn't stop talking about it. That was the problem. How did it do at the Oscars? It won one Oscar. Betsy, what Oscar did it win? Screenplay? Yes. Yes! Best original screenplay. Nominated for two besides Best Picture. Best Actor, Robin Williams. Robin Williams. Best Director, Peter Weir. 100 years ago, in 1859, 41 boys sat in this room and were asked the same question that now greets you at the start of each semester. 
Gentlemen, what are the four pillars? Tradition, honor, discipline, excellence. I think we need to have a conversation about privilege. It's about as white a movie as I've ever seen. <laughs> Holy moly. Well, um, I mean, this was this was the world of 1959. You know, boarding schools. Yeah. That this is when we get those stories of boarding schools being integrated by the Stouffer Family Fund, like my school was. I mean, we just marked our 50th year of integration last year. Yeah. Or, or in 2018. There was some stuff that I found problematic. The poem about the Congo that the boys go dancing oh, out of yeah. the cave to. What was the his Native name? American, Charles? The Native American. Yeah. Stuff. Who, adopts, who adopts the name Nuanda. Charles. Yes. Uh, and uh, Knox kissing the drunk girl. Yes. Not a good plan. Problematic. Right. And it's all and and while Carpe Diem, while this idea of seize the day can be an inspirational quote, it can also be, well, I'm going to do what I want to because I can because I have the ability to. And so there there is a dark side to this mantra that they keep telling themselves there aren't a whole lot of consequences for these kids. It, it when it first when this movie first started. My initial thought was, oh, man, these kids are going to be jerks. Like, I can just feel it, you know? And then trying to think about how to sympathize with characters that are born on third base. It's hard, right? It's It's a hard movie to kind of... Yeah, there's a very manifest destiny quality to Carpe Diem. You just roll right in. And, you know, in this acknowledgement, well, you're all going to go be doctors or bankers or lawyers... You know, but along the way, if you can figure out some of the beauty of this world and actually find yourself, there was there was that moment when they were coming off the desks and it was this, you know, if you don't find your voice, you'll get to an age where you can't find it. You know, I think I think that that it just echoes so much of the future. If you (laughs) revisited these guys, I agree with you. It is hard to sympathize with third base. You know, when when folks talk about sort of northern elites, I'm I'm thinking of like uh, political language um, nowadays. How um, how Trump can use uh, language about cultural elites dictating what you can and can't talk about, and Bernie Sanders can say, "Well, look, the whole society is predicated on favorability towards the rich, those who can afford to move ahead." have infinitely more advantages than those who are try who are working in a factory somewhere. Class divide is a real thing. Oh, yeah. I think it's hard to identify with someone who has such a different experience from you. So like I said, when I was watching this as a public school kid, I just thought to myself like this is a world that I can't really understand. And I, I under like I get that these boys have pressures. I'm sympathetic to Neil and the fact that his dad is pushing him and he wants to just be an actor and I get it. I, and I get, you know, I get why this is inspiring. These kids are crazy privileged. And it just you know, it makes you feel bad for them, but also feel kind of angry at the same time. I get how class divide can make people not see the humanity of each other. There's probably a stratum of ability to be at that school, present at that school. Yeah. Right. That that's there as well. 
And, you know, we will talk about how like being here at Episcopal is, is, is a privilege. It mm-hmm. is, it contributes to, to any student who's in the room, their privilege. And that's the, that's the pay it for that parents are hoping for is that education and connections and all of those sorts of things will help their child down the road uh, to, to become whatever it is that they're wanting to become. And that they, some people here are sacrificing a great deal or, or are on great scholarship to make that happen. And I, I definitely came into bo- this boarding school life wondering whether that kind of trope of everyone here is of the elite. And that right. that is not true. Classic going on 30 question. Who is this movie for? Betsy. Gen X? It's for us. I think it's, it's for, for us. us. Right? Even though we're talking about people who would be... They would be considered boomers, mm-hmm. right? Let's say they're 17 years old in 1959. They're kind of right at the beginning of the baby boom. So it's not like my parents would necessarily be watching it, maybe, and thinking, oh, that's them. Right. Because they're early early boomers. But yeah, no, this movie is a Gen X movie. Here are the markers for me. Nonconformity. Yep. Questioning authority. Yep. Um, rebelling just for the sake of rebelling. Like, just because of the thrill that comes with rebellion, uh, and then figuring out a reason for it later, all of these things seem of a piece with Generation X. Um, yeah, there was a teach- class that I took my senior year of high school, and it was like I it was like one of those classes you get to take an elective, right? You're done with your credits, right? You can kind of take whatever you want. And it was taught by a teacher who was of the boomer generation, but it was called Advanced Philosophy in Human Behavior. And it pretty much was, she she put together all the things that she wanted to teach. So it was, it was talking about philosophy. We did folkway violations, like we had in small groups. And we went out into the community and did things that violated societal norms. And then right. wrote about the reactions. Yeah. So like my group went to Ruby Tuesday. And we ordered food that you should, should eat with uh, utensils. And we eat, ate it all with our hands. Yeah. And, and people like asked to move away from us. And we're like, look at us challenging the system, figuring out society. Like that yeah. that element of, of Gen Xers are like, I want to study sociology. I want to be up in kind of the human behavior aspects. And then the rest of the class was the 1960s. Like it was, right. it was like, what is this class? But it's so fun. Uh, yeah, I think that yeah. I think that the poetry actually helps with this because it's yeah. like, you know, Pritchard wants to explain the formula for poetry. Keating wants to deconstruct the poem and figure yeah. out, like, what are the pieces that make you feel that are in this? Like, what's in this prose that makes you feel? Deconstruction feels very much like a Generation X move for figuring things out, not trying to figure out the rules so that we can apply those rules to our lives and get ahead. It's well, why are we doing this? It's why it's why, you know, Seattle bands were stripping rock and roll down, you know, and saying like, okay, guns and roses just put out a 10 minute song. We're going to put out a two minute, two guitars, (laughs) drums lead. Right. That's all we need. Well, And we don't care. We don't care about image. It's just about the product. I mean, it's why why Gen X chefs you start seeing you know deconstructed food, like yeah. deconstructed desserts and deconstructed this and and you know you've got your old ways, but this is us saying we like the flavors and we like some of what you're doing, but we actually would like to present it in a different way. Uh, what is your rating for this movie out of five? Greg, <laughs> it is so hard. 
not to just love on this movie. I have your old ratings here. Okay, what do I have so far? Remind me. So far, you gave The Abyss 3.75. You gave Born on the Fourth of July 3.25. Okay, okay, there we go. Uh, I'm going to go, I'm going four and a half total nostalgia. Oh, wow. Yeah, I love this. I love it. Why the 4.5? Sold on nostalgia? Sold on nostalgia... I just I was interacting with it in a lot of different levels. It's a very that's a very personal four point five, I think. Yeah. Just as a teacher, as a you know, as a young person, just kind of across the board. Yeah. What about you? Uh, I'm at a three point five. I thought it was fine. What did you give the other two movies so that we can be keeping score? I gave The Abyss a four, and I gave Born on the Fourth of July a two point five. Okay. I thought it was fine. Again, I think my viewing experience was affected by other people's opinions about the movie or opinions that I had heard about the movie before just, I watched you it. You can just say Roger Ebert. I mean, you can just say that. No, no. <laughs> Old Raj really took you down on this one. That's right. That's right. The Roger side of my brain was saying one thing and the Pauline Kale side of my brain was saying another. And it just comes out as a 3.5. Quick question, why did the Academy nominate this, do you think? I think their own nostalgia factor. They like these kind of a peek into a world, a Mm. peek into a social system, Mm -hmm. and whether this is a peek into elite boarding schools, because you you know, we're not not then nominating school ties to be right. There's something very classic, classical Mm -hmm. about this. Mm -hmm. And this I think a yearning for a past that was not as complicated, it, mm. to, but you know, does that make sense? What, why do you? Yes, think? it does. I have two reasons that I think it was nominated. One is because Robin Williams is doing something very different. You know, it, it's yeah. noticeable when Robin Williams is toned down. That's one. The second is I think that it got nominated because of that final shot of the boys up on their desk. I think that there's something magical about that scene. If the poem score for perfection is plotted on the horizontal of a graph... Mr. Poem, Keating, they made everybody sign Mr. Anderson. You gotta believe me, it's true. I do believe you, Tom. Leave, Mr. Keating. But it wasn't his fault. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. One more outburst from you or anyone else, and you're out of this school. Leave, Mr. Keating. Captain, my captain. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. You hear me? Sit down. Sit down. This is your final warning, Anderson. How dare you? Do you hear me? Oh, Captain, my captain. Mr. Overstreet, I warned you. Sit down. Sit down. Sit down. All of you. I want you seated. Sit down! Leave, Mr. Keating! And it it leaves such a lasting impression. Uh, where does this rank with 1990? I have The Abyss still on top. Dead mm. Poet Society second, born on the 4th of July 3rd. You have, based on your rankings, yes. Dead Poet Society number one. Number one. And then number The one. Abyss, and then born on the 4th of July. How about that? 
We uh, okay. a road diverged in a wood. <laughs> exactly. So so what are we what are we watching next? What's next? Uh, our next movie is actually the reason for this podcast. I'm pretty sure the reason for this side project. We are watching okay. Spike Lee's "Do the Right Thing" okay. next. Do the right thing. A movie that was not nominated for Best Picture mm-hmm. clearly should have been, and uh, is our unanimous choice uh, as a Best Picture nominee. So, mm-hmm. do the right thing is our next movie. Betsy, thank you for seizing the day with me. No, no, no. I've already used that pun. I got it. No, no, I have <laughs> okay. it. Okay, all right. Brett, okay. thank you for sucking the marrow out of this movie with me. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, that's so gross. So, so good. I wish I was sitting in a cave with you. Actually, we did oh, do this so podcast gross. from a cave. Inside look. Inside look. We're actually in a cave right now. We will so. see you next time for Do the Right Thing. <laughs>